After his first two attempts at opera failed to impress the public, Verdi was ready to give up. On this week's episode, the opera that won him a permanent place in the repertoire, Nabucco. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. This Saturday, January 7th, Verdi's Nabucco is on stage at the Metropolitan Opera and will be broadcast to movie theaters around the world live in HD. Today, we bring you a Talking About Opera presentation by writer and director Albert Inorato. He explores Verdi's first big hit, which included a tune that became one of the opera's most recognizable melodies and a symbol of the Italian nation. I bet a lot of opera lovers probably know this story about Nabucco. Giuseppe Verdi was wandering the streets of Milan in despair. His wife and two children had died while he was composing his second opera, a comedy. It had been whistled off the stage of La Scala, seemingly ending his career before it had begun. Verdi was insulted at the theater and in all the papers that were published throughout Italy. He'd given up. A man bumped into him. It was the impresario of La Scala, Bartolomeo Marelli. Oh, I have something for you, cried Merelli. It so happened Merelli was carrying around a libretto, the title, Nabucco. I don't want it. I'm through composing, barked the composer. Take it, cried Merelli. Verdi turned to run in the opposite direction. But before he got away, Merelli thrust the little booklet into the composer's coat pocket. Back at his dark, closet-like room, Verdi threw the coat on the floor. The libretto fell out. In a rage, he hurled it across the room. It fell open at the words, Va pensiero sull'ali dorate. Go thought on wings of gold, a version of the psalm we sat down by the waters of Babylon and wept. Some mystical force drew the composer to his little spinet, and this is what resulted.
Those last lines, O mia patria si bella e perduta, O my fatherland so beautiful but lost, as well as that great tune, made Va Pensiero virtually the national anthem for those who wanted a united Italy, free of all foreign occupation. That was a dream long dreamt and long in coming. Verdi was to be associated with it throughout most of his career. And though Nabucco became a smash hit for many reasons, the chorus, all by itself, established the 29-year-old not only as a success, but as a great celebrity. It's a great story, and Verdi told versions of it for the rest of his life. But it's not true. Nothing in life is quite like that. Nabucco came about the usual way, through politics, string-pulling, the broke composer's surprising access to people with money, his ability to work fast and hard, his talent, of course, and maybe most of all, enormous luck. In her definitive book on the composer, Mary Jane Phillips Matz goes into dizzying detail about it all. But as long as 50 years ago, there were plenty who doubted the stories Verdi spun about his early life, usually with the help of well-meaning journalists and biographers. Of course, some aspects of the story were true. But let's start at the beginning. Giuseppe Fortunio Francesco Verdi was born in the small town of Le Roncole at 8 p.m. on October 9, 1813. Confusion started early, because his mother always told him the year was 1814, and Verdi was 63 before he discovered the truth. At the time, Italy was a battleground. Le Roncole was in the Duchy of Parma, which was under French control. It was invaded by Austrian and Russian troops who proceeded to slaughter civilians, it was said. Verdi's father owned a tavern, so they were poor but not destitute. But the ambitious boy was soon walking to the nearby town of Busetto, where he went to school and studied music. There he came to the attention of a merchant who functioned as his real father, Antonio Barezzi. He moved into Barezzi's big house. From the time little Giuseppe was twelve, Barezzi was less a champion than a fanatic. Verdi played the organ at the church and led the local amateur orchestra in which Barezzi played. He also taught singing, a good way to be alone with girls, especially Barezzi's pretty daughter, Margarita. They fell in love, much to her father's delight. Verdi had evidently always jotted down little ditties. In Busetto, though, he wrote all kinds of things, for the church, for the orchestra, and for his singing pupils. His instruction in composition was rudimentary, but about half the town, those of a liberal bent who wanted to see Italy united and self-governing, thought he was a genius. The other half, led by the priests, thought he was an ass. It was obvious to Barezzi that Verdi needed to get to the big city of Milan, first for training at the famous conservatory, then to make his name, maybe at the great opera house La Scala. But that took a passport and more cash than Barezzi had. Application was made to the Duchess of Parma, strings were pulled, and Verdi got a grant. He applied in writing to the conservatory and was asked to come in for an audition. He flunked. He was bitter about that for the rest of his life. But Verdi needed to feel opposed, and he loved having justification for the rages that tended to scare everybody who knew him. And as we've seen with the story of the birth of Nabucco, the truth is not that simple. At 19, Verdi was much too old for the conservatory. Boys were usually admitted at 12, and frequently earlier. Secondly, admission had a lot to do with piano skills. Verdi's were severely limited. Finally, Verdi was clearly experienced and capable in some ways, but backward in others. He wouldn't have fit in. 
Instead, the auditors advised him to use his stipend to get private tutoring, and they recommended a man named Vincenzo Lavinia. Actually, that cost more than the stipend, so Barezzi reached into his pocket, and far from the last time. Verdi lodged in the city and was worked hard by his master. Naturally, the young man hated him. Verdi was a big star back in the small town of Busetto, and nobody at all in Milan. He later blamed Lavinia for being backward and provincial. But in fact, Lavinia made Verdi go to all the theaters and analyze all the operas he heard. It was invaluable practice. Then Lavinia had him study the scores of Beethoven and Mendelssohn, both quite radical at the time, and both a considerable influence on the young Verdi when his career finally began. Lavinia did make Verdi do boring, old-fashioned exercises, but these had their place, too. Verdi had wonderful instincts, but his training had not been systematic at all, and those exercises, based on long-standing Italian models such as the writing of Arcangelo Corelli from the 17th century, forced him to think more logically. One of the results was a mastery of melody. Verdi was a natural tunesmith, but he learned how to make the best of any inspiration he had. From Lavinia's teaching and those examples, he understood how to set up a vocal line with simple but very telling orchestral accompaniment and small but striking surprises in the unfolding of the melody. A good example occurs in Nabucco. Fenena, the good sister, sort of the Irene Dunn or Callista Flockhart of the piece, has been converted from paganism, the worship of Baal, to Judaism and now faces death. She does so with this prayer. Though Verdi was far from a master of orchestration at this point, the lovely texture under that melody with its plucked strings and sustaining bassoon, the slight pauses all make something quite memorable of what could have been much more ordinary. And in fact, the influence of Corelli can be heard in that texture and in the shape of the tune. In 1836, after Verdi had studied for two years, two jobs came up. 
They were the kind of music master jobs that were typical in Europe and very useful to young composers without patrons or private money. One was in Monza. It was very well paid, and a house was provided with free firewood and an allowance for lighting. Verdi would have supervised church music, the local band, and whatever passed for more serious music, and he could take pupils without a kickback to the town. Monza was close to Milan thanks to a new railroad, so he would have had an easy time keeping in touch with the city where careers were made, and he wouldn't have needed a passport to travel back and forth. By now, he and Margarita Barezzi wanted to be married and have children, so this was perfect. Oddly enough, the teacher Verdi despised pulled every manner of string to get him the job. Almost simultaneously, the same position became available in Busseto. It paid much less well, did not provide for housing, and the town wanted kickbacks from any private teaching the maestro in this job provided, assuming he could find any pupils able to pay in the small town. Barezzi put Verdi's name up, and the liberals in the town gathered around Verdi. There were almost riots of support. The priests put up their own candidate, a mousy little man who kept his nose out of politics and was devout. A full-fledged civil war began to rage. Anyone who wanted to be considered of the elite had to support Verdi. The moral minority, for such they were in this case, joined against him. Unfortunately, since even the moral minority hated the priests, the other candidate had a hard time of it. Verdi was desperate not to return to Busetto, but not to do so would have been a slap at his benefactor. So he put himself up for the job and, surprise, got it. In 1837, he moved back. The church associated with the conservative priests was not only deserted, but the person running the music there decided to play religious hymns by Giuseppe Verdi, just to show he was his own man. The priests couldn't fire him. Nobody else would take the job. Verdi was playing at the bigger church and also writing pieces for the small orchestra, marches for the band, and glee club songs for the chorus. The band and the glee club would figure a great deal in the music of Nabucco. He and Margarita were married and had a daughter who died within a short time. Verdi kept his eye on Milan and wrote an opera he called Rochester, except nobody has ever found it. About a year later, Verdi was writing an opera called Oberto Conte di Bonifacio. It was assumed, though no one is sure, that Verdi just folded the music for Rochester into Oberto. But what really happened is a puzzle. Verdi had kept connections alive in Milan, and in 1838, as Margarita nursed their second child, a son, he went there with the score of Oberto. He told everybody in Busseto that he was pretty sure of a semi-professional mounting in a small theater. But when he got back, he was thrilled. Somehow he had gotten to Merelli, the head of La Scala, who it seemed had promised a performance of Oberto for the 1839 spring season. So Verdi broke his contract in Busetto, and with his wife and son settled in Milan, arriving on the 6th of February, 1839. Connections and contacts were more important than talent in making a career, and Verdi, in his late 20s, was already on the old side to be starting. By that age, Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini had all been veterans with powerful protectors. But Verdi was optimistic. Parts of the score of Oberto were distributed to two famous stars contracted at La Scala for the season, which was the way it was done in those days. 
Singers did not come and go as needed. They sang what they were assigned, though, of course, famous ones could sabotage operas and did all the time. But the entire season had been a disaster for La Scala's manager, Marelli. The famous tenor who had been engaged for all the operas had a vocal crisis. It was necessary to keep changing the bill and to cut the tenor parts down or out. Audiences had been restless, the theater often empty, and only the last-minute sensation of L'Elysir d'Amore had saved the situation. Like any impresario of the time, Morelli was inclined to offer a success as often as possible, and since it was already near the end of the season, there was no room for Oberto. So he canceled it with a vague promise to do it in the fall. This sort of thing wasn't unusual, and since it's never been known what Verdi based his expectations on, the composer may have been half expecting it. But he still had to admit a temporary setback to the folks in Busetto and find a way to support his family in Milan. Meanwhile, Verdi went to the barber regularly for a shave, dressed well, and attended the great salons of Milan. Straponi quite likely introduced him around. Verdi was celebrated in later years for his peasant-like shrewdness, toughness, and independence. Well, he was world-famous and very wealthy by then. As a young man on the make, he did what people do. He tried to meet everybody and became quite popular in the artist's salons. There were plenty of lonely women with money there who wanted to patronize and help a young maestro. These salons were also places where men made deals and started alliances that could pay off later. These people were the box holders at the theaters, especially La Scala, and the people who often intrigued to get managers and impresarios hired and fired and saw to their pay. And since many of them wrote reviews for the newspapers about their friends or their enemies, there was no in-between, they were very important to any career. Throughout the summer, Verdi continued to intrigue for Oberto. Quite suddenly, Marelli decided to do it. This may owe something to the great basso Ignazio Marini and his wife, both of whom Verdi had also courted the season before, and for whom he tailored his opera so the basso had the biggest part. Marini actually suggested Verdi build up the soprano part, which was being sung by his wife, but Merelli's decision was so last minute, Verdi didn't have time. Oberto opened on November 17, 1839. Verdi's infant son had died in October, but his wife was there to share a solid, if not sensational, success with him. Verdi had played it safe, and the work was thought somewhat old-fashioned and derivative, but its strong tunes and big opportunities for the singers made their intended effect. It was given fourteen times to good houses, and the score was acquired by the firm of Giulio Ricordi, who was to become the most powerful publisher in Italy and one of the most powerful in Europe, to a very large degree because of the money Verdi's operas brought in. Ricordi might not have foreseen quite that success, but he paid a goodly amount for the rights, 2,000 Austrian lira. Mirelli offered Verdi a contract for three more operas to be delivered at eight-month intervals. The first was to be called Il Proscritto. But as usual, casting difficulties created problems, and Verdi decided to set a comedy, called first Il Finto Stanislao, the fake Stanislaus, but later changed to Un Giorno di Regno, King for a Day. Verdi had no real interest in this piece, but while composing it at the last minute, he did come across a man and an idea that interested him. The man was named Temistocle Solera. His idea was to take a French play based on the supposed exploits and private life of the Babylonian king Nabucodonosor and turn it into a tight, relatively short four-act opera. The first thing they decided was that that title had to go. They would call it Nabucco. 
Some work had probably already been done on Nabucco when Margarita died in June. Verdi was indeed heartbroken and fled back to Puzzetto, but he returned to Milan after a month. Probably he was still grieving. He didn't feel the desire to compose, but spent his time reading bad novels. The money from Oberto and other small publications of songs kept him reasonably well. Eventually he got around to working steadily on Nabucco. As happens with creative people, he sensed that this was the kind of opera he needed to compose. It was a fast-moving story with outsized flamboyant characters and colorful situations. Verdi loved to read the Bible, and while the opera would hardly strike a Protestant as biblical, Verdi was obviously stimulated by the scope and would-be grandeur of the emotions in the story. He went to Merelli with the finished score. But of course Merelli was uneasy about it after the fiasco of King for a Day, and as usual there were problems with scheduling. But the biggest problem was that Morelli wanted a bribe. This has only recently come to light, but it seems likely that Verdi and Barezzi went to rich friends in Busetto in Milan and got them to underwrite the production. That meant Merelli pocketed most of their money, then went into the cellars of La Scala and came up with old sets and costumes. Just who backed the composer remains a mystery. Barezzi couldn't have afforded it all on his own. That Verdi may have found a wealthy woman for a patron is certainly possible. And Barezzi, having staked so much on Verdi in the milieu of a small town where people were making fun of him for his faith to the point of publishing nasty verses in the local paper, probably felt that even if this was the last time, he had no choice but to come up with his portion of the needed money. They were repaid handsomely. On March 9, 1842, La Scala saw one of the greatest triumphs in its history. The screaming went on endlessly. The composer, young as he was, had leg and back pains for a few days afterwards. He kept being hauled up to the stage from the orchestra pit, which is where the composer sat in those days, to bow and then being pushed back down. Though Nabucco shows an awareness of Rossini and Bellini in its writing, it has some striking points of originality, too. One of them is a preference for two kinds of voices. One is the high baritone. Until Verdi, roles that are now sung by baritones were in fact sung by high basses, with the writing mostly in the middle of the voice. It was Verdi who decided to push the voice upwards, virtually creating a new voice type. The high baritone became his favorite kind of voice, and many of his great roles, characters like Rigoletto, Posa in Don Carlos, and Simona Bocanegra, were written for this kind of voice. For the baritones of the time, Verdi seemed to hammer at the top of their ranges. In Nabucco, this is sometimes a rather crude way to express the rude force of the king. That's Nabucco telling the Hebrews to prepare to swim in their own blood in Act One. 
The other type of voice which is new is a kind of wild, dramatic soprano with florid ability. Here the character is called Abigail, or Abigaile in Italian. She is asked to sing over a full two-octave range with massive power, fearless attack, but still to be able to sing coloratura well. Straponi was a typical soprano of the time. One assumes hers was a light, high voice and probably not very large. Her biggest success had been as Adina in Lelazir, remember, basically a lyric part. It's hard to imagine what went through her head when she saw this in the score, a movement to the high C, then a drop of two full octaves immediately. Abigaile is Renata Scotto, who was also a famous and wonderful Adina in L'Elezir d'Amore. This recording was made toward the end of her career, and she never sang the part on stage. Straponi was 26 and sang it night after night. There are those who blame Verdi for wrecking her voice. Be that as it may, this kind of writing was to be used by him to characterize she-demons like Abigaile and Lady Macbeth, and rather more subtly to a degree at least, to bring to life extravagant and memorable characters such as Atsucena in Provatore. No one before him had thought of voices in this way. Verdi wrote the overture at the last moment, and it sounds rather hasty. It starts with a chorale theme that conveys the honesty of the Hebrews with a sudden eruption which suggests the threat they are under. This is followed by a potpourri of melodies from the opera rather crudely mixed together. The following is the tune of the curse the Jews hurl at one of their number, Ismaele, who has saved Nabucco's favorite daughter, Fenena, from slaughter, followed immediately by a tune associated with the savage Abigaile. Very indecorous, but loads of fun. Act One opens in the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Nabucco, king of Assyria, has defeated the Israelite army and is heading right for the sacred temple. All who can have crowded into the temple in terror.
the Levites call upon the virgins to pray for deliverance and then join them. The high priest Zachariah enters and tells them to fear not. Not only is the Lord surely on their side, but they have Nabucco's daughter Fenena as a hostage. Besides, there are many precedents for rescue in their history. Digitola suilidi, elia mose dievita, digideoni cento. There on the banks of Egypt he let Moses live, and he made Gideon invincible. My favorite part of this aria comes next. Zakaria asks, Who in trusting God was ever abandoned? But listen to the bassoon playing staccato. That means bouncing off its notes. Somebody had been reading up on his Beethoven, particularly the pastoral symphony. But what is so effective there is a little naive here. The Israelites are momentarily comforted, but Ismaele, a handsome young man of noble blood, runs in with bad news. Nothing is going to stop the arrogant Nabucco. Zakaria pulls the terrified Fenena out of the shadows and entrusts her to Ismaele. As they run to fight as best they can, he will guard her. Then Zakaria rallies the troops and all rush off. Zakaria was mistaken in trusting Ismaele, for his first words to his hostage are, Beloved! You look prettier than ever. Even Fenena has some trouble reconciling this attitude to his sacred duty. But soon she succumbs as well. They'd met in Babylon when he was there as ambassador, and she rescued him from her crazy father. Wasn't that wonderful, she has to admit. He leads her to a secret door. She will leave the temple through there and be safe. He opens the door when... That was none other than Fenena's fierce sister, the dreaded Abigaile. She's dressed like a man in full armor and is covered in blood, having hacked a path to the temple just to get some love from Daddy. Who doesn't seem all that inclined to like her? Naturally, she has a warrior's radar for the secret door and is leading her special forces in. She takes the situation in immediately. Pro de guerriere, she belts, brave warrior. You love the arms of your beloved more than those of war. But soon she is climbing the scale in that brutal way Verdi thought up for this Amazon from Abyssinia.
Having vented, Abigaile reveals she has issues. She's in love with Ismaele. She wanted to save Ismaele from Daddy's rage, too, only Fenena got there first. Well, she doesn't wear armor. But look, Ismaele, she says, just love me and I'll save your people. Never, cries Ismaele. Fenena can just roll her eyes and wonder if the God of Israel can explain her sister. But it's too late for counseling. Nabucco is near. The Hebrews tumble over themselves with Zakaria following them, all in terror. Nabucco enters to a big march riding his stallion into the temple, in itself a terrible sacrilege. Zakaria calls on Nabucco to stop in the name of God. Which God is that, Nabucco wanders. He's about to order the destruction of the temple when in a fury Zakaria grabs Fenena and holds a dagger to her throat. Stop or see your daughter die, he cries. Well, if you put it like that, mutters Nabucco. But he's full of rage. This builds into a big ensemble with Nabucco promising rivers of blood at a later date. Abigail hopes her father's bloodlust isn't so easily stopped so she can see her sister stabbed to death. Then she might seduce Ismaele. Ismaele wonders what will happen to Fenena while Fenena joins Zakaria's sister, Anna, and the other Hebrews in hoping for peace. Unfortunately, Zakaria hadn't known about Ismaele, and at the last minute, Ismaele pulls Fenena to safety away from that knife, thus clearing the way for Nabucco to enslave the Hebrews and destroy the temple. That's Act One. In the first scene of Act Two, we are in the famous archives of the royal palace in Babylon. Abigail, alone as usual, but at least out of armor, has been doing some digging. Peniot invenio fatal scritto, she cries. It's lucky that I found you, O fatal paper. She's found what amounts to her long-hidden birth certificate. In the play, Verdi and Soler are ripped off. Abigaile was the child of one of Nabucco's wives and a slave. He killed them, but of course took pity on her, and she was raised in the royal entourage. This is vaguer in the opera. Abigaile reads that she is pro schiavi, descended from slaves, but it remains unclear whether we are to understand that Nabucco is her father. In any case, the paper removes her from legitimate succession. But that's not going to stop her. She's going to kill everybody and then rule, even if there's nobody left. We've already heard a bit of this truly demonic recitative. But then Abigaile's mood changes. She too knows love, love for Ismaele. 
She expresses this in quite a beautiful melody. The aria is called Anch'io Dischiuso Un Giorno. Even I once opened my heart for a day. But this becomes more memorable as Abigail literally allows her memory to flower at the very thought of Ismaele. Verdi uses rising turns quite magically here, and again one is struck by the spontaneity of his melodic development. The high priest of Baal enters with his followers. They have decided to engineer a coup. Fenena is too sympathetic to the Hebrews. They're in prison, but she wants to set them free. Meanwhile, Nabucco is clearly too crazy to be trusted. Abigail is their best hope for retaining power. She accepts their offer. Salgo già dal trono aurato, she cries. I will ascend the golden throne and, need you ask, slaughter everybody. They run off to make trouble. This, by the way, is what is known as a shena. That's a sequence of linked numbers that begin with a grand recitative, Abigail finding the scroll in this case. Then there is a contrasting slow aria called a cavatina. That is her remembering what it was like to love. Finally, there is a fast number with an opportunity for vocal display and fiery temperament. That is called the cabaletta. For most of the 19th century, this was a central building block in making operatic scenes. But Verdi, even at this early stage, is able to avoid a formulaic feel and reveal an interesting, if wild, character through this technique. The scene changes to a beautiful room in the palace. Fenena's chambers are right off stage. Zakaria enters with a Levite carrying the twelve tablets of the law. He has been summoned by Fenena and hopes to complete her conversion. This is one of the best and most beautiful moments in the score, and one of the most original. Verdi sets Zaccaria's recitative in prayer to a beautiful melody accompanied only by six solo cellos. Three play a melody line, three are plucked lightly. Under the bass voice, it's quite memorable. The melody itself is also unusually concise. It has, as intended, less the feel of an aria than of a private religious utterance. It is called Tu sul labro, Thou 
God who spoke on the lips of the mighty prophets, speak through me now. Zakaria enters Fenena's room. A group of Levites now enters, as does Ismaele. He makes the mistake of greeting them, Fratelli, brothers. They cry out, Maladetto del Signor, cursed of the Lord. They're not big on forgiveness. Zakaria, his sister Anna, and Fenena come on and ask forgiveness for Ismaele. In saving Fenena, he has saved a Hebrew. She has just converted. The most faithful of Nabucco's servants, Abdallo, comes running on, crying, Help! There's a coup afoot! The priests of Baal, with Abigaile in armor again, and her soldiers come rushing on. Fenena just happens to have the crown. Abigaile tries to snatch it when Nabucco enters and terrorizes everybody. These events come helter-skelter, but now everything stops for what is known as a false canon. The soloists each sing several bars of the same music, which seem to be building to some kind of complexity when instead the chorus joins in. Nabucco kicks it off, yelling about the day of wrath that's about to descend, then the others join in, expressing their fears. The problem is it all sounds decidedly jolly. Nabucco has waited long enough to rain his fury down. Everyone deserves to get it. The Babylonians with their stupid belief in the wooden idol Baal, for example. Nabucco is more powerful. He must be worshipped. In fact, there is only one god, Nabucco. Non son più re, son dio. I'm no longer king, I'm god. Non son più re.
That was Nabucco being hit by lightning. He collapses and loses his mind. This is another of those stretches that is remarkable and shows Verdi's distinctiveness. Normally one would expect what was known as a stretta, a piece of music at the end of an act that gets faster and faster. Instead, Verdi pulls back and gives the suddenly demented king a disjointed piece that somehow hangs together, alternating declamation with melodic fragments. Not since Gluck had there been so concise yet so telling a musical dramatization of a turning point in a character's destiny. Then the act sweeps swiftly to the end, with Abigaile asserting her new status with one great phrase. That his teacher made Verdi study people like Gluck and learn from the long-windedness of his own contemporaries paid off here. The rhythm of Accursed of the Lord, the Maldaretto del Signor, thunders out, and Nabucco, suddenly a pathetic old man, cries for help. Zaccaria cries out, This is the vengeance of God. Maybe, snaps Abigaile, but I'm the queen. And that's Act Two. That's Abigail's royal march. It starts Act 3. Abigail is approached by the high priest of Baal, who carries a death warrant for, well, just about everybody. Not only must the captive Hebrews die, but that awful woman, the queen's kid sister, is at the top of the list. Now, wait a minute, gasps Abigail. What are you asking of me? Of course, she grabs that warrant a little too avidly when suddenly Nabucco wanders on. He has aged and been sick. He is unattended. Abdallo, his faithful retainer, tries to get him to leave, but he is unable to stop Nabucco climbing the stairs to his giant throne. He is horrified to find Abigaile there. She quickly gives her court the high sign to disappear. And the great scene between two people in this opera starts. Donna, chi sei? he asks. Woman, who are you? Your successor, she cries, guardian of your glory. Out of spite, she hands him the death warrant with its long list of names. These are his enemies, she says. He is too addled to grasp what he's being asked and seems to recognize a name there. She makes it clear. If he doesn't sign, the Hebrews will arise and mock his memory. Give me that. Death to the Hebrews, he barks. Once Nabucco has signed, Abigail exults. Nabucco realizes he's been tricked. Give me that back, he cries. You're just a slave. Oh, yes, sneers Abigail. I was a slave, all right. Here's the paper that proves it. 
She waves it under his nose, then burns it. I'm queen now. Nabucco realizes he has lost. He could only beg her mercy for him and his true daughter, Fenena. He sings a moving melody in F major based on William Tell's famous aria of advice to his son not to move with that apple on his head in Rossini's opera. Ah, miserando veglio, Nabucco sings, l'ombra sei d'un re. Ah, poor old man, you're just a shadow of a king. Abigaile tells him he should be ashamed of himself. No matter what, she'd never beg that way. Suddenly there are trumpets off stage. What's that sound? cries the dethroned king. The death summons of your daughter. Furious once more, Nabucco calls for guards, but they arrest him. You are now a prisoner, Abigaile laughs, the prisoner of a slave. And once again, all he can do is beg for Fenena's life. The scene changes to the hanging gardens of Babylon. There the Hebrews, under guard, facing their destiny, sing emotionally of their lost homeland in that great chorus we've already heard, Va Pensiero. Zaccaria enters, but not to comfort them. He has a prophecy. Whatever their immediate fate, Babylon will be ruined. Not one stone will be left on another, while the people of the law of Moses will live forever. The chosen people. That certainly cheers everybody up and ends the act. Una 
four is called The Broken Idol. You guessed it, Baal loses. In the first scene, we see Nabucco hallucinating in his prison cell. He imagines himself young and in battle, slaughtering all his enemies, but suddenly he has heard Fenena's name cried off stage. He runs and looks through his prison bars. We hear a death march played, and he sees Fenena in chains, obviously being led to something other than a coronation. This makes him sane. He kneels and prays to the God of Judah, apologizing for his blasphemy and promising to free the Hebrews and destroy all his own rights. The aria, maybe not Verdi's most memorable for a baritone, is called Dio di Judah. God hears Nabucco's prayers. His faithful retainer, Abdallo, breaks in with other soldiers. They can't bear another second of Abigaile, and they have brought Nabucco his snickersnee, his huge sword. Now all he has to do is wield it and sever as many heads as his old heart desires. That's for dessert, cries the king. We have to rescue Fenena. Once again, we're back in the hanging gardens. One assumes this was the one set Morelli the impresario had to decorate, so he used it twice. Now it will run with blood, for just about everybody is going to die. Fenena sings the prayer we heard earlier. But Nabucco and friends run in and save everybody. And they all, Israelites, Abyssinians, and royals of all faiths, join in an unaccompanied hymn. Immenso Jehovah, greatest Jehovah. That was the end of most 19th-century performances, but Verdi did write a death scene for Abigaile. 
she's taken one of the operatic poisons that works real slow and doesn't interfere with vocal functioning. She crawls on stage and begs everybody's pardon. After all, it's not like she's a bad person. She's done it all for love of Ismaele. But now she gives Ismaele and Fenena her blessing and calls on Jehovah to forgive her. One has a sense from the flutes that in Verdi's cosmos he does, and the curtain falls. That was Albert Inarato talking about Nabucco. The last performance at the Met this season will be broadcast live in HD January 7, 2017. The cast includes Ludmila Monastirska, Jamie Barton, Dmitry Beloselsky, and Placido Domingo in the title role. For more information, visit metopera.org slash incinemas. I'm Naomi Baratera. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.